Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'll be talking to Juanita de Villiers. Juanita is a collector of hobbies and special interests and a master's candidate at the University of Cape Town. Her thesis focuses on contemporary Gothic literature. Juanita is a massive horror enthusiast in the process of starting a horror podcast and has a horror Instagram account already. She's currently working on a chapter about autism, folklore and horror cinema. Juanita describes herself as a queer cat mom cliche and as passionate about animal rights and food justice, and as a vegan. Juanita's piece in Living Well Feminist is called Finding the Average, Neurodivergence, Queerness, and Fitting In. In that piece, she says, I'm a confluence of things that would not fit in. It's why I hold the label queer so dear. I am queer. I am odd. I'm out of place no matter where I go. My body will not shrink to fit and it will not grow to the size that allows me to claim fat as a title of honour. I was an outcast at school, quirky as a young adult. I couldn't curtail myself properly. So today I'll be talking with Juanita about body projects, body comfort and neurodivergence. Welcome Juanita. Hi, thank you so much. So your piece in Living While Feminist begins with girls in a forest. What was it about that moment that has stuck with you and why did you choose to begin your essay there? Um, Well, when I was writing it, I needed a point to launch from that didn't feel so internal because really what the piece was, was me working through a lot of feelings that had come about with my diagnosis and um, with the process of being more vocal about my diagnosis and about my sexuality. And so it, it felt very in my head. And this was a moment that stuck out to me in my memory as something that was very visceral and very physical and very external. We're going to get to talking a little bit about your late diagnosis um later in the podcast but for the beginning I'd like to talk about the body a little bit more and your piece touches on dieting and trying to fit your body into a social ideal that just doesn't work for it a sort of body project and you say in your piece I clung to the idea that I would lose baby fat long past the point of any babyishness about them these were women's hips birthing hips lack of fro liquor hips that just wouldn't be contained by the low-rise genes that were so in favor with my classmates I felt out of control like I was spilling outwards over denim dam walls that would have kept me safe and likable. Feminism taught me that it wasn't my body's fault that men would leer at me, that the body I hated was a source of entertainment for them that was not my doing, and that changing myself would not change the quality of my partners. This this section of your piece is so beautiful because I think so many people will relate to it, and there's so much going on. So can you talk to me a little bit about what it meant at that time you were writing about to pursue this body project in your adolescence and the experience of your body telling you otherwise? Mm. Um, Well, there's quite a lot going on around that. Obviously, when we all go through puberty, our bodies change incredibly suddenly and it feels like everything's out of control because in a lot of ways it is. Our hormones are raging. We're going through growth spurts. The genes that fit you a month ago won't fit you now you have to go buy your first bra um for me that came a little bit earlier than 
a lot of my classmates um and the fact that I was developing sooner than them made me feel ostracized it made me feel like I was being thrown into adulthood when I was still very much a child um in my outlook in my interests in how I wanted to express myself um and then that was paired with sort of social expectations I'd been a very a slim child I'd done ballet my mom um my late mom was a very slim woman uh, she'd modeled when she was younger you know I'd had this very particular type of femininity modeled for me that was all about fragility and fragility through thinness and fragility um and not just fragility but um almost a resistance to taking up space that was embodied um, and then when I hit my sort of grade six, grade seven years, that completely became unsustainable for me to achieve. I became womanly way ahead of when I would have liked to. And it's still something that I'm uncomfortable with. You know, um, bodies are all different. We all come in different shapes and sizes. And I am just very curvy naturally. And that to me felt like it was my fault like I was too sexual too young that I didn't want to be or I was too much too loud um there was just all this rhetoric around restraint that I couldn't quite process out and so it became embodied for me if I could control the way I appeared then perhaps I could control my environment I could control the hypersexualization that was being thrust upon me I could control um, some personal chaos that was happening in my family it became the means to make myself unimposing unnoticeable and safe and so then you come across across feminist ideas that say, actually, the problem isn't you, Juanita. Yeah. <laughs> the problem is the really fucked up world that we live in. When did you come upon these feminist ideas and how did they get into your mind, into your heart? Um, so I don't think there's any one defining moment. It's more a series of uh, building upon each other ideas. So being raised by a single mom, uh, obviously primed me to have a very strong opinion of women and femininity um, but she of course had her own internalized um, misogynies and her own insecurities that like any parent does pass on to the child so then the next wave became trying to undo undo those and a lot of those were around the body but a lot of them were also just around um, understanding nuance in feminism um, I think there's a tendency for especially young feminists to sort of jump head in and say there's no gray areas, there's no areas of difficulty, there's no areas that I need to learn more about. It's just, you know, women power, et cetera, et cetera. So I definitely was that in high school and early um, university. And then at university, I think as I started to uh, read more sort of higher order texts instead of the the fantasy that I'd been reading a lot as a child and a young adult um, I started to get exposed to um, points of view I suppose that I hadn't been before and that I think is a huge part of it, it it's difficult to answer because feminism isn't just an ideology it's a 
mode of living in which every element of my politics and my experience feeds it. Um, my my food justice, um, my uh, interest in queer theory, my interest in horror, um, my lived experience, the experience of people I talk to. There, there's no way to disentangle the feminist lens that I look at everything through. So to try and point to a moment becomes very difficult. I think that's true for many people. Um, I like that you, you've mentioned your time at university there as more of an experimental time. You mentioned it now and in your piece as experimenting with your body as body project mm. of getting your ears pierced, of shaving off your hair, getting tattoos and dressing how you wanted. And in your piece, you talk a little bit about the clothes that you chose to wear. You say, I wore dresses and flowers and combat boots and whatever I wanted. I ate whatever I wanted. In my mind, I'd gone so far from any idea of beauty that there was no reason to try to conform, no reason to fit, no reason to make myself small. Men looked at me now, not to evaluate the possibility, but with apprehension, and I felt beautiful. Approach me if you dare. I had shed a weight I didn't know I carried. And this was so interesting to me because in the adolescence that you described, you were trying to control the body project. Like if you did this one more thing or performed in a particular way, then you would feel like you fitted in, um, which is a very common belief for, for many people who've had a difficult childhood, which is if I were better, it would be better. You know, if I just got out the way, it would be better. Or if I behaved this way, it would be better. Um, and then in university, you sort of flipped this on the head and it became more like, it's not me, it's you, world. <laughs> I'm not going to try anymore, which sounded really freeing. Was that your experience of it? Um, to, to a large degree. I mean, whenever you're writing um, and you're trying to make a linear story, essentially, or a linear narrative, you, you, one does oversimplify. Uh, my experience with that was never as cut and dry as well. When I got to university, suddenly all my body image issues disappeared and I was perfectly comfortable in who I am. But it was the first time that I was given a lot of freedom of expression, you know, things as simple as not being in a school uniform that wouldn't fit me properly <laughs> and being able to express myself through my appearance rather every day um, gave me confidence in some regards but also made me hyper focus I think a little bit on trying to project outwardly what I was feeling internally in a different sense you, you know now it became imperative that everybody know that I didn't care <laughs> I think a lot of people go through that um, I went a little bit more punk in my look um, I I think it became its own kind of obsession, but it was also incredibly freeing. I think there's there's something to knowing what you feel comfortable in in your outward expression that is incredibly freeing. Um, but I also think there can be a danger of hyperfixating on that. You know, the, we live in the era of the aesthetic, right? You go onto TikTok or Instagram and there's all these very curated aesthetics. You're punk, you're indie, you're a cottagecore lesbian, you're um, whatever it may be. And I, I, it's no longer so much just on the body as it is curating an image that extends from the body outward. And I think there is that danger there. But for me at that time, it was initially very freeing. 
What you've mentioned there is a sort of interest in identity politics, um, and you speak in your piece a little bit about labels in relation to identity, some that you found useful at that time and maybe now, and others that you don't. And one of the ones that you mentioned that you find useful was the label of queer. Mm. What does that term mean for you, and why did it help you feel a sense of belonging for a time? Right, so I came across the term quite late in life. I came out quite late in life as um, I suppose bisexual, but it's always difficult to label those things. Um, queer for me is the resistance to the label. Queer for me is the resistance to an easy answer to questions of identity, of self, of gender, of sexuality. Um, since I wrote my piece, I've been exploring particularly my gendered body in different ways for the first time. So that has played into it and I think I was reticent to actually admit that at the time so queer became a very safe label to apply that didn't force me to define what exactly it was other than not the norm um, but I think there's also there's a powerful politics in queer it is a reclaimed slur the act of calling yourself queer is inherently political you can be gay or bi and apolitical or even conservative, but it's not possible to be proudly queer and apolitical. It's it's a statement of your position in society. And so what is the politics there? Is the politics that labels themselves are the problem, or is it that people should generally desist from trying to box people in? Um, I don't think it's a politics around labels necessarily. I think mm. it's a politics around... Um, I. Yes, it's a politics around identity, but it's an identity in relationship to a society. So labels are useful and they're wonderful things that help you find community, but they can also be restrictive. What queer does is it signals simultaneously to your community, to the queer community, hey, I am one of you. I am actively supportive of you because it is political and you're basically saying I will take a societal bullet by labeling myself as this unclean um, thing as this oddity as this word that has been used against me um, but at the same time it also gives you the freedom to explore and to expand and to take on whatever self-understanding you need to at that time so uh, the only way I can explain it is in terms of labels but it's not really just about labels it's about your relationship politically to the world around you but then it's also about your relationship with yourself with your gender with your sexuality with your comfort in your gender so you know um a couple months ago when I was really starting to question you know am I as cis as I think I am Probably not. Um, I asked just very openly on Facebook um, in a bit of a, a fit of, oh, God, what is going on? You know, is there a word for not gender fluid or not gender queer, but queer in your gender? Um, and that that difficulty to find expression is, I think, what makes the word so useful, because there are a whole host of ways to be a woman but there is something queer to the way that I am a woman. There is something non-heteronormative to the way that I am a woman. And that unidentifiable oddness, whether it is related to my neurodivergence, whether it is something else, queer helps me to explain. <laughs> I think what you're talking about there is a sense that at some points 
using a label can help you find a community that can help you explore more openly. But there's also times when it can be, as you say, not quite right or not quite the fit that you needed um, and can be alienating in some ways. And you speak frankly in your piece about a time when you were feeling particularly alienated and had a suicide attempt and felt very isolated. Mm. And you say that through anger, you found healing or rather in your words, which I, I loved, you recovered out of spite. As a reader, this felt like a moment where you were able to recognize that it was the world that had let you down and not you that was a letdown to the world. Can you tell me about why anger helped you on that healing process and what were some helpful and supportive things and what wasn't so helpful for you during that really difficult time? Um, I can try. <laughs> so I think what it was was that I had been so numb, essentially, and the only emotions that I was really experiencing were very self-defeating but anger anger is energetic anger is turned outwards anger rather is forceful you can do things with it it is not healthy i do not recommend anger as a means to recovery but if it is all that you can access in that moment it can be powerful um it can fuel you and it can shut the voice in your head down that says that you're to blame and I'm not entirely blameless in my experience of the world it's not as simple as that but when you've been telling yourself for 25 years that you are the only problem that you are to blame for everything even things that are out of your control having moments of frankly fuck you can push that voice out of your head and can help you to be able to at least get out of the bed and get to the therapy session and do the work. Um, so it, it's not a sustainable long-term recovery plan. <laughs> and if anything, it can lead to burnout. But sometimes when you feel like a lot has been stripped from you, anger is something you can grasp onto. Yeah, I mean, I felt angry on your behalf reading your piece and especially around how late that you were able to get your diagnosis mm -hmm. at 26 years old that you have autistic spectrum disorder. So I wonder what that diagnosis meant for you and for those who are not really familiar with the idea of neurodivergence, if you could just give a little bit of an explanation about what that means. Sure. Um, so to answer the second part first, um, neurodivergence is a, a framework around which um, it's kind of like linked to the social model of disability where instead of viewing the individual as I am disabled because I have an impairment it is I am made disabled by a society which doesn't accommodate my needs and everyone has individual needs and those needs are diverse and vary some will be physical some will be emotional and so on and so forth but neurodivergence is specifically around um, disabilities of neurology um so autism spectrum disorder ocd adhd uh many other conditions like that that um you could think of as somewhat invisible um conditions and it basically suggests that these are normal diver or not divergences but normal variations in human neurology that we as a society need to accept and need to accommodate. So instead of saying 
that because I am autistic, there are things I cannot do. And it's as simple as that. It's because I am autistic, there are certain accommodations that need to be made for me and I have the right to have those accommodations met. It's a centering of agency of the neurodivergent person um, rather than a sort of belittling, oh, you have a condition mentality. And so you mentioned in your piece that autism is very underdiagnosed in little girls, and obviously that was the case in your instance. Did your readings explain why that's the case, and do you know if there's any efforts to try and redress this? Um, Yes, there are. Um, So autism is underdiagnosed not just in people who are assigned female at birth, um, but also in communities of colour and communities of poverty. And a lot of that has to do with the initial studies around autism and the diagnostic criteria. They are modelled pretty much on little white boys. (laughs) Little middle-class white boys are the diagnostic model for autism. Um, And because of a host of social factors, we know that the brain (laughs) is very plastic. So environment plays as much of a role as, you know, genetics. Um, So if you are socialized to be a a sweet little girl who has to accommodate the world around them, they're going to be better at masking. They're going to be better at sort of essentially presenting as neurotypical because they are expected to. Um, Also, interests that um, we will hyperfixate on um, as women on the spectrum often align very strongly with the expectations of what young women will be interested in. So you may find that a a young woman on the spectrum, uh, when she's in primary school, is obsessed with horses, which is a very common thing for young girls, right? Um, We all knew horse girls growing up. The difference being that she's probably a little bit more interested in it. She may know the Latin names of different breeds. She may have um, gone into genealogy. She will have gone obsessively into it. So our special interests tend to align with what society expects of us. They may get very into makeup, which, you know, okay, well, women like makeup, I suppose, you know. (laughs) Um, They may get very into stereotypically feminine interests and activities um and some of that may be genuine interest some of it is also that um because of socialization uh, assigned female at birth autistic individuals tend to see what we are supposed to behave like and then try and mimic that um in order to survive essentially um we're not given as much space to be odd. Um, even our stims, which is self-stimulatory, self-stimulatory behaviors, may appear normal. When a girl twirls her hair, for instance, people don't take much note. Or when a girl gets very happy, especially if she's young, and she starts flapping her hands wildly and going, ee! and getting very excitable, oh, she's just being very girly. But when a young boy exhibits the same behavior, we tend to take note because of, you know, heteronormative ideas around behavior. Um, So a lot of the behaviors go unnoticed in women. They also go unnoticed in communities of color because the way that uh, individuals, I can't speak to that as a white woman person, um, (laughs) but the way that individuals are socialized in those communities to have to survive um, are different. Um, You can even just look at 
it's as, as tragic as it is, but police brutality across the, the globe, the way that a young black man is going to respond to authority is very different from the way that a young white man is because the consequences are life and death. So some of the more aggressive autistic behaviors, for instance, may essentially be suppressed and more sort of quote-unquote acceptable behaviors will come out the flip side of this is that we are more likely to engage in self-harming behaviors as a result because that energy has to go somewhere and if we can't be aggressive outwardly we'll be aggressive inwardly but yeah there is a lot of research being done um the diagnosis in women is increasing uh there are researchers doing great work on that and more importantly with the internet being the way that it is, autistic women and autistic people from across the spectrum are coming together and we are saying, hey, we exist, this is our experience, and more and more people are able to identify with those experiences and seek diagnosis. That's all fascinating and devastating and empowering. <laughs> you know, like this, it's, it's hard to know what to feel about a yeah. world that is so intense on policing people into gender boxes into performance narratives that we ignore ways that we could take care of people better um but i think it's incredible that i mean though it was so late in your life it's incredible that you were able to get a diagnosis that felt so freeing and so right um and i think it's really incredible that you've chosen to show you to share your story and to share this research which was just fascinating um i'm a bit bowled over to be honest <laughs> um you mentioned something there which was around special interests, and I definitely think we've all known the horse girls growing up. <laughs> but one of your special interests, which was really interesting to me, is a focus on gothic literature and horror. Mm. And you said in our email exchange that you're currently working on a chapter on autism, folklore, and horror cinema. I'd really be interested to know more about this. And again, if people don't know what gothic literature is, is there a simple explanation for us? Oh, God. Um, well, there's... There's a simpler explanation, I suppose. There's an entire field of academic study as to what is gothic, what isn't gothic, and I, I don't have the energy or the inclination to enter into that debate. But um, much like many genres, it's an atmosphere in a lot of ways. It's an atmosphere of excess, of perversion, of troubling boundary, of troubling taboo. It's one of those things where it's easier to point to examples of it to give someone understanding of it than to try and define it. So examples would be Dracula, Frankenstein, Edgar Allan Poe, but in the contemporary, you can think of films like Crimson Peak, Pan's Labyrinth. Um, I suppose it's the forefather of horror, really, is what it is. Um, and it is a a thing that blends as a genre with other genres you can have a gothic science fiction much as you can have horror sci-fi uh, so it's it's a much like it likes to resist taboo and boundaries in its writing it likes to resist taboo and boundaries in its de definition and I think I relate to that as a queer person to be honest <laughs> I was gonna say it sounds like it's right up your alley <laughs> like resisting all definition yeah. um, you said in your bio that you hope to become a professional horror fan. What does this look like in your imagination? And can you tell me a bit about the podcast you're hoping to start? Yes, um, but I let me just answer the second part of your previous question. I realized cool. I didn't. Um, the chapter that I'm working on is for a collection on contemporary horror cinema. And it is a chapter, uh, or rather a book that is organized by an autistic individual and it's featuring many autistic authors which is I think 
awesome because autism has been used and abused and so have neurodivergence in general and disability in horror you know you can there's <laughs> so much exploitation honestly of the disabled community in horror but much like other marginalized communities we've kind of found a weird way of relating to those representations so that's a whole other topic you can look into like monster history and how queer communities have taken up monsters as you know as as heroes and how they've identified with the villains but what i'm looking at specifically is the uh, phenomenon of uh, what i'm terming autistic coding in children in horror films so what this relates to in my argument is in at least in the films that I'm examining, is the the myth of the changeling, the sort of Celtic and Germanic myth of the replaced child, the child that is replaced by the fair folk or the fae. Um, and the ways that they were historically identified are very much autistic and other traits. Um, you know, it became a blanket term for Down syndrome, for autism, for epilepsy, for it became a lovely explanation for those behaviors. Um, but the 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 coding that seems to have survived in film is very much there, often non-verbal or very rarely verbal. They may display what look very much like stims to me, rocking back and forth, echolalia, which is um, repetitive sounds. Um, they may be seemingly unaffectionate towards their parents. And these are all markers of otherness used in the film that very much stem from these myths around neurodivergent and disabled bodies. So I'm examining how that myth has evolved and has, even when directors aren't aware that that's what they're drawing on, has become a trope in horror. Wow, that sounds amazing. And it, as you're talking, I'm like nodding my head along here thinking, <laughs> yeah, I can see like several examples of exactly what you're saying. Yeah. That sounds so fascinating. That whole collection sounds fascinating. Um, why horror though and what is a professional horror fan <laughs> um i use that as a little bit of a cop out really of answering the the awful question of what do you want to do with your life um, but ideally what i would like to do is i would like to align my special interests with my academic interests more and i would like to get involved in more accessible academia i for a long time thought i wanted to go into academia i wanted to lecture i still sort of do i still like the idea of maybe being an academic librarian but what i would love is to look at more online accessible learning things like video essays and podcasts and even TikTok are becoming the ways that people access information generally. And there are amazing media scholars on all of these mediums. And they get to write and talk about fascinating subjects with peers who are as interested. And it's very niche, but I would love to incorporate more of that into my life. And do you have a favorite horror book? A horror book? Uh, yeah. Do you mean a book of fiction or a book on the subject of horror? Oh, whatever. Uh, in terms of uh, books of fiction, it's not strictly horror, but I love um, Octavia Butler's sci-fi horror, and I love mm. Angela Carter's fairy tale reimaginings. They're mm. so unsettling. Um, the Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. I love it. I taught it in a seminar and it just, oh, uh, but there's so many good ones. In terms of 
books that take a feminist reading of horror. Barbara Creed's The Monstrous Feminine is really good. Um, and then I think it's Carol J. Clover's Men, Women, and Chainsaws, which really outlined the final girl trope. It's a little bit dated now, but mm. it's still very foundational. Um, mm. Updated one on that would be, I'm going to butcher the title now because I'm terrible at names, but it's something like Dead Women and Dead Blondes or something like that. Mm. Um, it's It came out, I think, last year, uh, Women and Dead Blondes, something about Dead Blondes. <laughs> Um, and that's looking at um, the way that femininity functions in horror films. Mm. I think exceptional. But yeah, I, I love um, Barbara Creed's The Monstrous Feminine. Um, and Chris Stava's work on abjection and horror is also excellent. I think it's called um, Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> the power of Google. <laughs> um, I also mentioned in the introduction that you are vegan and passionate about food justice and animal rights, and um, which I'm also vegetarian. I'm very interested in the body politics around meat. Mm. And can you tell me a little bit about this journey and what it means for you in the day to day to be passionate about food justice? Right. Um, well, the journey um, sort of only really started taking place when I left home for university and I was able to make more of my own food decisions. Um, so I went vegetarian in, I think, my first or second year of university. And then I was vegetarian for about four years. Oh, at time, I'm not great with time. Any autistic and ADHD people listening are going, yep, nope, we completely understand. Time has no meaning. <laughs> but... Um, I was vegetarian for quite a while. Um, I first cut out red meat and then chicken and then fish. It was a very slow process for me because I didn't want to shock myself, essentially. Um, when I'd been restricting as much as I had been in unhealthy ways, cutting food out of my diet felt like it was a potential trigger. So I took it very slow. Um, and then I, I finally made the decision to go vegan maybe three years ago. And that was after wanting to for quite a few years and um some of the things that spurred it were just within myself I felt a disconnect between my value systems and the way that I was living my life um as someone who values the autonomy of sentient beings as someone who was avoiding cosmetics that were tested on animals and so on and so forth it felt very strange to be advocating for those things and to be advocating for environmental justice and still be participating in one of the most destructive industries out there. So it was a little bit of reconciling my actions to my values um, and a book that was really influential for me. It's unfortunately quite outdated, or at least it was when I read it. I think newer editions may fix some of the gender essentialism and some of the other issues with it, um, was um, the sexual politics of meat and the pornography of meat. And that really helped me align my veganism and my feminism as very interdependent, as did um, the work of Angela Davis, who is an amazing um anti-racist activist, anti-capitalist, anti, uh, anti-capitalist activist, and she is a vegan. And her, her speeches on the subject and her lectures were also a huge influence. Um, so it became the case that, you know, all oppressions are intertwined, right? 
Um, and environmental justice is a feminist issue because the people who are going to bear the burden of environmental disaster are those people who are most marginalized by society. Um, But within that, speciesism plays a role for me because we cannot talk about environmental justice and anti-oppression when we're still actively engaging in the oppression of sentient beings. And my cat's rubbing up against the microphone as I'm saying this as if to say she agrees. Um, but um, uh, it it is complicated because you can't expect society to disengage from food systems that are so unevenly distributed. You know, you can't expect someone to be vegan in a food desert. You can't expect that. So there's a lot of politics around veganism that I think complicated. But if you are able to disengage from this particular form of oppression, then I think you're standing on a position that's much more in congruence with your values, personally. Everything that you say there is 100% what I I believe. I think I've just finished some research myself on climate change and gender, Mm -hmm. and it is marginalized groups, including women, trans, non-binary folk, who are going to be most affected by climate change because of the unsuitability of policies to addressing their needs. And I did this research that is set in South Africa, and really Mm. we should be worried that the government is not taking gender seriously and climate change, and they're not taking food justice and the way that we produce, consume, treat animals for eating for producing Mm. things for us so I think it's really fantastic that you've been able to make that shift and to take your put your values into practice so Mm. um yeah heads up to you well done I mean I would like to go further I think that um the recent spite of community gardens that I'm finding scattered all throughout Cape Town is fantastic and that's something I'd like to get more involved in local production of food at the source you know um Angela Davis always was like being radical is simply grasping things at the root and in this case one of the easiest roots to grasp at is being able to produce where you are you're eliminating a lot of the carbon footprint of that food you're eliminating a lot of the uh, the suffering of other beings around that food you are eliminating the capitalist price hiking around food foods simple healthy foods should not be expensive or hard to come by. I'm growing on a windowsill in an apartment. I'm growing spinach and bok choy and lettuce and all of these things that I just rooted from food scraps. And I think little things like that, you know, it's not up to the individual to change everything because honestly, it's corporations that are the problem, but they can give you a sense of power and that can be really useful. Feeling like there is something you can do, something that has a tangible impact. Um, that's always great. Definitely. And my husband is in the waste space and he is always saying, you know, if you're not going to give up meat, then the most important thing you can do for the environment is to separate your organic food waste Mm -hmm. from your normal waste and recycling. Because when that goes into landfills, it contributes to a whole lot more pollution than Mm -hmm. if you were sending litter to a landfill. So there are small things. I think a lot of people, I mean, whether it's feminism or any social justice cause or food justice, people, it feels overwhelming if you think, Mm -hmm. oh my God, I'm going to have to change my whole life. But like you say, if you just start with keeping your lettuce scraps and growing some new ones, it's not, it makes you feel encouraged to keep going, I think. And that's really Mm. a nice message. Mm. So I have three last questions that I'm asking everyone on the podcast. The first is what is a book that has inspired your feminism and that you'd recommend? 
You can oh. have more than one. <laughs> oh, thank God. Um, <laughs> so all of the amazing uh, women authors that I've mentioned, you know, um, but particularly um, Angela Davis is a massive influence on me and my theoretical frameworks. Um, but also, um, I think I've mentioned the sexual politics of me in terms of fiction, one that I didn't mention that is sometimes, I think, cliche, but go back to it. If you read it as a teenager and you thought that you understood it, and you did, you understood it at that time with your current framework, but go back to it now as an adult is The Bell Jar. I recently reread it and it was a completely different experience from when I read it as a teenager. It resonated in very different ways. And um, Plath's description of... Um, of of the bell jar of that feeling of being in that dome it's it's so powerful and it just gets more poignant as you get older um sister outsider is a great collection to read um there's just so much and i think actually what i will say is this take an interest that you have if it's art history if it's music if it's whatever and find something with a feminist framework that relates to that and that can be a great introduction very good advice and do you have a quote that inspires you or that you live by um i do i'm not really a quote kind of person um but i i I quite like i think it's in jane Eyre, uh who is the inspiration for my my horror alter ego jane scare um uh, she says i am no bird and no net ensnares me and i remember reading that when i was younger and feeling feeling all kinds of ways and then um there is a quote by angela davis that I really like. You can tell that she's kind of my obsession. Um, but I really like, um, I'm going to have to paraphrase, but it's something along the lines of um, freedom as an idea is inspiring, but what does it mean? If you're free in a, in a social and political sense, but have no food or shelter, then what is it? Freedom to die. And I think that's so important for activists in particular to bear in mind is the material conditions that people are dealing with you know we talk about um you know self-identity and a lot of identity politics can end up becoming a lot of self-reflection and that's important but there there are material real world things that we also need to liberate my final question to you is do you have any advice for other feminists on their journeys um I have quite a bit uh, because I'm still working it out so do as I say not as I do I guess um but learn how to ground, whether that is meditation for you. For me, it's embroidery, which, you know, I'm not very good at it, but it's a meditative, repetitive exercise. The world can be incredibly overwhelming. And the more that we have moved into online spaces, I find the easier it is to not notice your overwhelm because you haven't left the house. What, what do you have to be overwhelmed by? But you need to learn to recognize that you're getting overwhelmed and you need to learn a technique to ground your and you need to ground yourself somehow whether it's meditation embroidery watching bad horror movies and laughing at them dancing around in your apartment whatever it is something that makes you feel connected to the world and to your body and that takes you out of your head is going to be a lifesaver and then two phrases that you need to learn is i'm sorry i was wrong and I don't know enough about that. Let me find out more and then actually do that research. Um, increasingly, online leftist spaces are becoming 
very difficult to negotiate in terms of being wrong or and you're expected to be an expert on every subject and nobody is the more you learn about something the more time you've spent on one particular idea which means there's a whole host of other ideas you haven't had time to learn about um so normalizing oh i'm sorry or oh i didn't know that let me go find out more about it and actually do it (laughs) preach (laughs) that is amazing i think it's so true i was speaking to someone else on a podcast as well about the idea of being at the frontier of scientific thinking or of any thinking and Mm -hmm. being at the frontier means you're going to fuck up and make mistakes Mm -hmm. because there is so much that you don't know and if you're not making mistakes you're not at the frontier Mm -hmm. you're not learning not trying so you need to you need to know your strengths not everyone Mm -hmm. is going to be an organizer i sure as hell am not an organizer i can't rally people i've anxiety around crowds for goodness sakes but what I can do is I can read and I can research and I am relatively good at taking information and simplifying it and disseminating it if that is your strength use that strength in your work if you have a green thumb start a community garden if you are someone who is great at social media find an organization that maybe needs an update to their to their social media that does good work that could get more funding if they had wider reach play to your strengths Oh, I love it. Thank you so much, Juanita, for this conversation, for your thoughts and for the tips on good reads. Um, <laughs> I really appreciate the time that you've taken today to talk to me and thank you for writing for Living While Feminist. Thank you so much and thank you for doing this work. It's been great. Um, the collection is an excellent example of what I was saying about finding perspectives other than your own. You know, each each chapter is a is a new way of looking at this embodied feminist experience that is existing well feminist so it's Mm. it's a great collection in that regard thank you Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Living While Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves. <laughs>